It is my pleasure before I read the sermon this morning to read Scripture. I invite you to turn with me to the letter to the Colossians in our New Testament, small letter at the back of our New Testament, and I'm going to do our official Scripture reading for the morning, Colossians chapter 1. We just started a series, and we're going to be reading verses 15 through verse 23. Two paragraphs we'll be taking up in the sermon this morning, King Jesus. I invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. One of the reasons we stand is just a visible reminder that we stand as a church underneath the authority of Scripture. And may I remind all of us that the voice we are about to hear, not mine, but God's voice, is the most important voice we will hear today on this Sabbath. Here is God's infallible word, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard. And that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. If you are visiting, we are currently in a new sermon series on Colossians, this short letter by the Apostle Paul. And the theme and the title of our series, The Supremacy of Christ. We've learned that Colossians was written while Paul was in prison. One of four letters he wrote from prison. So much for the prosperity gospel (laughs) that believing in Jesus always means you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and safe. Paul spent a lot of time in prison or being beaten or chased out of cities. This was a church that started with a very strong track record to Jesus. It probably was less than five or six years old. But, as we noted last weekend, it was a church that was facing a very serious crisis, and that crisis was that a false gospel was starting to infiltrate this congregation. And as such, Colossians is a very urgent letter. There's an urgency to this letter from Paul because of this false gospel that is starting to penetrate. And it's a reminder to all of us, including ourselves here at this church, It's very easy for churches to get off track. 
It's very easy for denominations to get off track and fall captive to a false gospel and a counterfeit Jesus. It happens all the time. A counterfeit Jesus who cannot rescue you from your sins and a counterfeit Jesus who cannot deliver on his promises to his people. And that brings us to two very important paragraphs this morning. We believe these are inspired of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verses 15 through verse 23. <clears throat> these two paragraphs are probably one of the clearest sections in all of the Bible on the identity of Jesus. And Paul's laser focus in Colossians is the resume of the real Jesus. That's what he's talking, the resume of the true Jesus. Because as Paul reminds us in another one of his letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, there is another Jesus. He said there's another gospel. Be careful. Just because someone comes to your door, just because someone writes a book, just because someone has a podcast, and says they're about the gospel, they're about Jesus, does it mean it's the biblical Jesus or the biblical gospel? And so we dive into these passages. Friends, beloved, if you know Jesus as Savior, this is an incredibly encouraging passage of Scripture because it reminds us that King Jesus is on the throne and that whatever else is going on in our world, even our upcoming election cycle, the king is on the throne and everything is on schedule. So with that, Paul makes three very powerful declarations in these verses, these paragraphs. The three declarations are Jesus is Lord of creation. Secondly, Jesus is head of the church. Thirdly, Jesus is the only savior. With that, we have a lot to explore. If you know how we preach, we dive into the text and we want to ask, what does God say? So we're going to dive right into verse 15 and begin to take it apart. Verse 15 starts us on this first point that Jesus is Lord of creation. The Son, He, in the Greek, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, a number of biblical scholars agree, and I think they're probably pretty accurate, that this, at least from verses 15 to 20, are part of an early Christian hymn. This seems to be the pattern here. The word translated image, he is the image, is the Greek word icon from where we get our English word icon. So you get an idea of what the word means. It means a picture, a representation, a painting. In fact, if you are familiar with the Orthodox world, the Orthodox Christian world with the capital O, I'm talking about Russian Orthodox Church, Ukrainian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, or, or Greek Orthodox, you will know that if you go into their auditoriums or sanctuaries, they are filled with icons, visual representations, paintings of the saints or of Jesus. I'm not here arguing for the merits or not merits of that. It, it presents a beautiful imagery, but that's where the word comes from. It, it means a, a representation, which fits the context here very well. Jesus is the perfect image icon, representation of God, something echoed in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Second word to drill down on is the word firstborn. Now this confuses a number of people in Western culture because we are very linear, very literal, very biological in our thinking on this. Usually when we talk about firstborn, we mean exactly that. It was the first one out of the womb. That's how the word used. When someone asks me, who's your firstborn? Without hesitation, I will say, oh, the guy that read the Apostles' Creed this morning, Ben. He's my firstborn. In a Middle Eastern culture, and even some traditional cultures today, that, that is still 
often true. However, especially in the Old Testament, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, firstborn was more than just the first one out of the womb. It could also mean and often did mean something way beyond that. It had to do with rank, status, and honor in the family, in the tribe. And you could actually lose the title of firstborn as a firstborn, and it would be passed to someone else. Happened with Ephraim and Manasseh. So it's a rank of honor. It's a rank of title. And God calls Israel his firstborn as such. And here the titles apply to Jesus. And it doesn't mean he's created. It doesn't mean he's a creature. Becky and I have dealt with a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses over the years, found them to be very sincere, very pleasant, very uh, uh, kind people. However, in one of my very first encounters with a Jehovah's Witness as a senior in high school, I remember going back and forth with some letters with her on, on this issue, and one of the things she argued was from this verse right here, Colossians 1.15, when she pointed to the word firstborn and said, see, it means Jesus was born, he was created, he's not God which is a very strong belief of the Jehovah's Witnesses, that he is the son of God, but not God the son. In fact, they say to say he's God is blasphemy. And yet, they, they misunderstand the word firstborn here. It doesn't mean Jesus was created. It means, in all the imagery of the Old Testament, in that culture, that he holds the place of supreme honor in the universe. That's very clear from the context. Now, theologians call this or the doctrine of Jesus, Christology. Some of you have heard the phrase, some of you haven't. It doesn't matter if you've heard it or not. Christology is your doctrine of Jesus. And what's important to note is this. The New Testament has a very high Christology, meaning page after page after page after page. In fact, it's hard to find a page where it's not there. The Bible, the New Testament, is announcing that Jesus is God incarnate. He's the Yahweh of the Old Testament in human flesh. However, when it comes to New Testament Christology, there are some mountain peaks that stick above the clouds as exalted passages on the identity, the resume of Jesus. A couple of those passages, if you're writing notes, would be John's Gospel, chapter 1 or chapter 5. Both have a very high, what we would call very high Christology. And then passages like Colossians 1 or Philippians 2 or Hebrews chapter 1. These would be some of the soaring mountain peaks when it comes to the New Testament's Christology, its teaching of Jesus. The next declaration is breathtaking, verses 16 and 17. For in him, in Christ, all things were created, all things. Uh, this is echoed in Hebrews chapter 1. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and either by him or for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now again, back to the Jehovah's Witnesses for a minute. They have their own translation. I have a copy. It's called the New World Translation. It is the worst English translation there is for a number of reasons because of what they've done to conform it to their beliefs. But one of the most egregious things that they do in that translation is they insert the word other a number of times in verses 15 through verse 17 here. Because they believe Jesus was created, 
and he was the first one created and he's not eternal, they have to stick in the word other and they keep sticking it in in brackets here where there's no justification for that in the original Greek at all, but they keep sticking it in. In him, all other things were created, it says in the New World Translation. He is before all other things. In him, all other things hold together. You completely mangle and destroy the meaning of these verses by doing that. But you have to if you're going to hold to that Christology. So he created absolutely everything. Young people, boys and girls. That means Jesus created everything. There are just one example. I started out as a biology major in college. I, I still like biology and kind of an amateur biologist. But there are over 800,000 cataloged insects on the planet. That means Jesus created every kind of insect. He created every kind of bug, every kind of fish, every kind of clam, every kind of bird, every kind of snake, tree, turtle, cow, horse, or frog. All comes from Jesus. Let's go a little bit higher. This text is telling us he created every planet, moon, galaxy, nebula, star. I was doing a little bit of reading this week in astronomy, just being reminded that in our Milky Way alone, when you stand outdoors on a dark night and you see that chalky band across the sky, our, our, our little disk, we're told, is just a medium-sized galaxy, even though it has over 100 billion stars. And that it takes, I, mean, I remember walking with my dad. We loved to take starlit walks, and we would be walking and talking about it. And the, my dad was an engineer, so all things engineering in his mind. But we would talk about it. He'd remind me, you know, that if light starts at one end of our disk and travels to the other end of our disk, light traveling at 186,000 miles a second takes 100,000 years just to go across our little galaxy. I was reading this week from Mario Levio, who's an astrophysicist in Baltimore, and he reminded us our Milky Way galaxy is a small, mid-sized galaxy, and it's one of only, at least one of only 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. I mean, you, you, you go on and on and on, and then the gray matter in your head just explodes. There, there's no way to even begin to comprehend the size of our universe. And some of us yet, including myself, wonder, is Jesus big enough for my problem? Jesus big enough to handle my burden right now? Here's the creator of absolutely everything, every single star. Hebrews 1.10, the heavens are the work of your hands. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, young people, that means Jesus is God. He is the creator. And he is the Old Testament Yahweh in human flesh. God incarnate in human flesh. Now, I don't have to tell you that is a very controversial doctrine and not just out in the marketplace. It's very controversial, increasingly so, even in what we would call the confessing church across denominational lines. One of the first major debates, by the way, about the identity of Jesus, his resume, came up in the fourth century. Some of you know this, some of you don't. My mom recently was telling me that the Nicene Creed came up in her circle, in her church, and she said a number of the people said, well, never heard of it, what is it? And I found that a little bit distressing, a little bit shocking. So just a reminder, here's the quick story of the Nicene Creed, because this is one of the first major shootouts debates in the early church. It was the fourth century, 325 AD. And 
views of Jesus were dividing the empire and polarized the church throughout the Mediterranean world. And the current emperor, Constantine, did something that no other emperor had ever done. The other emperors before him were killing Christians and killing bishops and destroying churches. Constantine, for wherever he was with the Lord, under God's providence, invited over 200 bishops throughout the Mediterranean world, paid their expenses. I would have been a little suspicious as one of those bishops. Paid their expenses and invited him to his summer palace in northern Turkey, the city of Nicaea to have a conference and to debate and come to consensus on who Jesus was. And so they did that in 325 AD. On one side of the aisle was Arius, who was from Libya. He was a presbyter from Libya. And he argued, Jesus isn't God. He is like God. He's similar to God, but he's not God. He's the son of God. On the other side of the aisle, you had followers of Athanasius, who was an Egyptian priest, eventually became Bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. And he argued, no, 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 Jesus is God, and he is Lord of all. The, the two words that divided the council at Nicaea differed by one letter, the smallest Greek letter. Arius argued Jesus was homoousius, of similar substance. Athanasius and the rest argued, no, 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 Jesus is homoousius. He is of the same substance as God. As Edward Gibbon kind of said tongue-in-cheek, one Greek letter almost split the Christian empire in the fourth century. There's only one letter difference between homoousius and homoousius, and yet theologically, they are night and day. Jesus is either similar or he is God. One of those two positions is blasphemous. And the church decided very clearly and decisively, Jesus is homoousius. Here's the Nicene Creed, which was penned finally in 325. It was revised in 381 AD. This is the final version that we recite. And here's just the first paragraph. Listen to the wording with knowing just a little bit of the story. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, now listen, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same substance, homoousius, as the Father. That is the Nicene Creed. When you confess that, if you confess it, if you know Christ, if you're born again, and you confess that creed, that is what you are confessing. Now, before we go to the second point, I have to bring up the obvious. Namely, both Jesus and the New Testament writers, like we're reading right here, make what we would easily call very extreme claims about Jesus. There's nobody that can deny that, whether you believe the Bible or not. Anyone who walks around claiming to be God and can forgive sins and says he's the creator of the world and all people will be judged by him and he's the only path to God. If your neighbor said that, better call an ambulance because he's loony. So this is not normal. Jesus made extreme claims. New Testament writers made extreme claims. And here's what it means. Young people, kids, hear this. Here's what it means. It means you face a massive choice. Every single human being does for what you decide about Jesus. Because on one side, Jesus says in John 8, 24, if you do not believe I am, that's code for Yahweh in Exodus 3. 
If you don't believe I am God, you will die in your sins. There's only two ways to die, in the Lord or in your sin. One goes to heaven, one goes to hell. Jesus said, one of the ways, one of the ingredients for going to heaven, you have to confess Jesus is Yahweh. He's God. But then on the other side of the aisle, you have Islam that says, hold it. If you say that, that's blasphemy, you'll go to hell. And the Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups would argue the same thing. So the Bible says if you don't confess Jesus as God and believe it and embrace it, you can't go to heaven. Islam and other religions come along and say, no, no, no. If you say Jesus is God, that's blasphemy and you will go to hell. That's why everyone has to make a decision on Jesus. You have to make a decision on Jesus. And no decision is a decision. So there's no getting out of it. None of us can get out of it. What you decide for Christ will make all the difference in this life and especially in eternity. That's what's being said here. Secondly, verse 18, the second declaration, Paul says, Jesus is the head of the church. The Greek word arche, which is going to be the word for beginning here, is also translated source or authority. He is the head, the arche of the body, the church. So you can translate that word source of or beginning or authority over. They're all good translations of that word. He is the origin of the church. He's sovereign over the church. He's head of the church. He is the beginning and firstborn. There's our word again from among the dead. So that in him, in everything, he might have supremacy. He is the final authority of the church. That's why, by the way, it's so important that a local church, why our church, why any gospel church, any church, stays laser focused on the gospel. Again, it's very easy to get a, go astray. And it's why... Every church, every elder, pastor, every person in church that confesses Christ needs to pray, work towards unity and making sure that church stays centered on the gospel. Because here's, here, here's what happens when a church loses its gospel focus. Something else comes along and fills the vacuum. That church won't necessarily go out of existence. A lot of them will wither. We've seen that with our number of our mainline denominations over the last 50 years. As they've abandoned the Bible, as they've abandoned the gospel, their numbers have just shriveled. But it doesn't automatically mean they'll go out of existence. But here's what does happen. As a church or denomination loses focus on the true gospel, what happens is other agendas start filling the vacuum. That's exactly what happens. And other agendas begin to take center stage in that church or in that denomination. Prosperity theology suddenly becomes center of stage or a very radical pro-abortion position, which drives and motivates, shockingly, some churches, the murder of the unborn or extreme environmentalism or the LGBTQ agenda. That church is not going to stay agenda, agendaless, there's a good word, Something's going to fill the void. It either stays fixed on Christ or something else will come in and fill the void and become the agenda. And sadly, we see too many churches that have capitulated to that. And what happens, these other agendas end up misleading people, damaging marriages, damaging families, and destroying lives. That's why it's so important to stay fixated on the Bible, keep our finger in the text, and ask, what does God say? Lastly, Jesus is the only Savior. That's Paul's third declaration. 
Jesus is Lord of creation. Secondly, Jesus is head of the church. And thirdly, Jesus is the only Savior. And Paul here does two things. Starting in verse 19, he gives us the bad news, and then he gives us the good news. So first of all, he's going to give us the bad news, as he's going to talk about Jesus as the only Savior. Verses 19 to 21, first, the bad news. For God was pleased to have in him all fullness dwell, through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now here's the bad news. If you know Christ, if you don't know Christ, here's the natural state of human beings. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Back up to verse 21, the bad news comes first. And the bad news is every single human being here came out of the womb alienated from God. We were born moral rebels we're born haters of the things of God. We're born under the curse of Adam's sin. And we're born and we will face judgment unless something happens. And the problem, again, this is a very controversial thing to say. Even in a lot of churches, this is a very controversial thing to say, let alone out just in our normal culture. One of my favorite historical examples, it's slightly tragic, slightly humorous, I've read it several times, has to do with a woman, the Duchess of Buckingham, who was invited to hear George Whitfield preach. Now, George Whitfield, famous evangelist. In fact, we're told his name was more familiar in homes than Benjamin Franklin's name in the early colonies. And yet, he's largely forgotten today. He spoke to massive crowds on both sides of the Atlantic. He spoke in Boston once, and his audience exceeded the population of the city. This is a guy who had massive influence. But he had a very close friend named Lady Huntington who helped bankroll him in some of his travels. He traveled extensively. And she invited him and a small group of her friends one time to hear him preach in a very small private setting. One of the women attending, this Duchess of Buckingham, came. She listened, was deeply offended by what Whitfield said, because Whitfield pulled no punches. And then she wrote to her friend, Lady Huntington, and told her what she thought of Whitfield's message about sin and depravity. It's interesting to hear. She wrote, this is after listening to Whitfield, it is a monstrous thing to be told you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should agree with any such teaching, get this, that is so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Close quote. <laughs> there, there. That's what she thought of listening to the great George Whitfield extol the depravity of human beings and the need for a savior. Deeply offended and at such variance with high rank and good breeding. Well, the message of the gospel is offensive. It's offensive because it tells us we need a savior and that our heart is evil and that we are moral rebels against the law of God. That's the bad news. Fortunately, then Paul, verses 22 and 23, gives us the good news, which is the word we translate gospel. Starting in verse 22, but now he has reconciled you. Just to be clear, He's not just talking to anybody in that church. He's talking to those who are truly born again and know Christ and confess him as Lord. 
He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Here's a beautiful description of the doctrine of justification here. Present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Also look back at verse 20. He says, by making peace through his blood on the cross. One of the words used of what took place on the cross is the Greek word propitiation. It's used four times in our New Testament, twice just in 1 John. To propitiate is to appease the anger or wrath of someone you have justly offended. That's what it means to propitiate. In verses 22 and 23, it says, Sinners can only be reconciled to God, only through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Actually, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's what the gospel is. It's a, it's a word that means good news. And, and just to be clear what the good news is. The good news is not written in the imperative, meaning it doesn't say, here's some things you got to do to be accepted by God. The good news is an announcement. That's where people get mixed up between uh, the gospel and the plan of salvation. The gospel is in the indicative. The plan of salvation is in the imperative. The gospel is a story. It's an announcement. Announcement of what? That God has sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people and those who would believe and repent. That is the gospel. It's a story. It's an announcement. And then it brings with it a summons. That's the imperative. But the summons, the plan of salvation is different. It's smaller than the gospel. The gospel is a story. And the summons then, Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the good news. That's the response to the gospel. And it's important to note that not only does the Bible say Jesus is Savior, it says he's the only Savior. He's the only Savior. Since we're on the, on the task here this morning of citing offensive passages, there's probably none more offensive than when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, another one of these extreme claims. And the problem, once again, is how controversial this is, not just in the culture, in the church. Classic example, Lifeway Research. Lifeway Research is a nonprofit research firm funded by the Southern Baptist Convention. Every two years, Lifeway Research does a state of theology survey, state of American theology, across denominational lines. In just a couple months, they put their results out this fall, 2022. They did it again. It only, they only do this every two years. Of those who self-identified as evangelical Christians, and there was, there was actually four very specific criteria because you self-identify in this survey what you are, and the four criteria were very clear about if you or, you know, if you are identifying evangelical, you have very specific beliefs about Christ, the authority of Scripture, the role of salvation, Christ shed blood, all that. They said of those who self-identified as evangelicals, 58% believe that God accepts worship from people in all religions as legitimate 
and earning them salvation. That's 58% of those who are confessing as evangelicals. Over half, almost 60% believe God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. As the great Christian statesman Greg Livingstone has said, he said, while very few people in Bible-believing churches would say this, they wouldn't say they're universalists. They wouldn't say everyone's going to heaven. He said, our churches are actually filled with emotional universalists who don't really believe, don't really, really believe that outside of Christ you're lost and facing a Christless eternity in hell. A few years back, Becky and I were in England visiting our son and daughter-in-law, and we visited a historic church. The city was High Wycombe. It's just north of London. We visited a historic church in town center square, a large church, Protestant. And as we're walking through it, I bumped into one of the staff and I just played the ignorant tourist. And I said, hey, by the way, what do you teach here about going to heaven? How do you get to heaven? Can everybody go? And he very quickly said, oh, you get to heaven by being a good person. I said, really? I said, can, and, and there's a lot of Muslims in High Wycombe. There's a large Pakistani population there. I said, can... Muslims go to heaven if they don't quit being Muslims? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, as long, even if they deny Christ, as long as they're a good person, they'll, they'll go to heaven. Friends, that kind of belief is, is seeping all through the evangelical world and the Christian world. And it comes back to what does the text say? There are even now those who argue, and this has been an argument for some time, but it's becoming even more clear, there are those who argue that there are other ways to be forgiven of your sin besides just being a good person. Islam has long said that if you fight in a holy war. But just recently, Patriarch Kyrill of Moscow, who's the head patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, announced and suggested to any Russian soldier fighting in the Ukrainian war that if you go to war and you die in this war against Ukraine, you will automatically be absolved of your sins in the next life simply by being a soldier in the Russian battle against Ukraine. What nonsense goes on in the name of Christ? What heresy, what blasphemy goes on when the Bible could not be clearer, ladies and gentlemen? There is only one way to be absolved of your sins, and that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and in his shed blood. There is no other way to heaven, period. Like it, hate it, that's what the Bible says, and that's what Jesus taught. As far as a summons this morning, it's right in our text, verse 22 and 23 is our summons. And it's a small word you may have missed. And it has to do with the evidence that someone is truly saved. So I'm going to back up to verse 22, and our summons is the first word of verse 23. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. What's the first word, at least in the NIV, verse 23? If. Well, what's the word if doing in such an indicative text announcing such great truths? Paul is saying, if, this is all true, if you continue to profess Christ and are loyal to him until the end. Now you say, is that salvation by works? No. It's just saying, if you're truly born again and a new creature in Christ, you will endure to the end. Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. 
That doesn't mean you earn your salvation by enduring to the end. It means if you're genuinely saved, born again, and converted to Christ, you will endure. One of the most sobering truths in the Bible is that not all who profess Christ are in fact saved. Hence, why there are so many warnings given about examining ourselves. Matthew's gospel is full of warnings, most of them from the lips of Jesus, about making sure that you're really saved and not deceiving yourself. And Paul is saying, we give evidence of being born again if we continue committed and steadfast in the faith. Why? Because King Jesus is the one holding us. And nothing can separate us from his love if we're one of his. That's the gospel. And that's the good news. Father, thank you for your word. A word of triumph. And yes, it is offensive to the natural man, to the unsaved woman, to the unsaved teenager. It's offensive, but it's true. And we thank you that you gave us a book of inspired words in the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and then in our own translations that tell us how to be right with you. Thank you for the bad news. And thank you more so for the good news. And I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know Christ or who is self-deceived that you would open their eyes to see the beauty in Christ and be drawn to him and to understand his great eternal love for his own. We pray this in his name.